1: Would your soul tell us a different story from the image we see on the outside?
2: Welcome to Core Truth Radio, a radio ministry of Core Church Los Angeles, with pastor and Bible teacher Steve Wilburn. Pastor Steve will be teaching the Word of God with truth right from the Bible. For more information, go to corechurchla.org. That's corechurchla.org. For today's Core Truth, we are continuing in our study in John chapter 8 in a message titled, Looking Within. This is part two.
1: I wonder what would happen if we took a deep look inside of our own soul. What would we see there? Some would have a desperate thirst for success, a desire for power, a desire for position, some others would thirst for greater knowledge and understanding of many things in life that perplex us, while others still might seek after the thrill of adventure and travel. Then, of course, many long for passion and love. Many of our hopes and dreams could be shared with others. Then, of course, there are those deep areas of sin that are inside of us that we don't want to share with anybody. Areas that we know are wrong, that we suppress deep into our soul, that we resist. Areas that will surface at times and leave us filled with guilt and shame. Yes, if we look deep within the depths of our own soul, we would see many things. From areas of great joy and long sought dreams to areas of darkness and things of despair. I wonder who you really are. Would your soul tell us a different story from the image we see on the outside? Understand, God only looks on the inside. He never gets us, you know, sidetracked with the way we look on our outward appearance. He always searches our soul, our very hearts, as he examines the depths of our soul. Ask the wealthiest person on earth, how much is enough? And we might get a variety of different answers from the wealthiest people people on earth. But they all seem to agree on one thing. How much is enough? Well, just a little bit more. Why? Because they never cease in their thirst for making more. Or consider those who are thrill seekers. That's a person who wants to take part of an activity that involves personal risk. People that run with the bulls, uh, swim with the sharks, uh, take a kayak over a waterfall. But no matter what they do, if they succeed, meaning they live through whatever, uh, they want to do something else. Maybe they'd like to climb the tallest mountain in the world. That's Mount Everest, of course. Did you know that over 300 people have died in their attempt of climbing Mount Everest? Did you also know that just in 2019 alone, since January to right now, 11 people have died trying to climb Mount Everest? Then there's a passion for love that dwells deep in the soul of many. Like Bradley, he's five years old. He's in kindergarten. And he said this quote, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm gonna find me a wife. (laughs) It's like... That's a young man that knows where he wants to be. (laughs) Some never figure out though, how to satisfy the thirst for love inside. Consider Tom Cruise. He's never quenched his thirst for love. He's dated many from Melissa Gilbert from Little House on the Prairie to living with Rebecca Domornay, to getting married to Mimi Rogers, who introduced him to Scientology. But obviously their science project failed as Tom divorced Mimi and he married Nicole Kidman which didn't last as Tom was thirsting for something new. That's when he hooked up with Penelope Cruz and he was with her for a while, but that only lasted for a season. Then Tom married Katie Holmes. He was so excited. He was jumping up and down on couches about it. But then Katie was thirsting for something else and she just simply left. Well, Tom Cruise isn't the only one that is thirsting for love. Today, we're going to look at a woman who was thirsting for love also. Yet she, like many today, was looking for love in all the wrong places. Now, we're not told this woman's name. She's only known as a woman caught in the very act of adultery. As we consider her story today, we will consider uh, three points as we continue in our study in the Gospel of John. Number one, caught in the act. This woman was literally caught in the act of adultery. Number two, looking within. Jesus is always looking inside of us. Not so much of what's happening on the outside, what's happening on the inside. And number three, finding a savior. Because this woman, on this day, she found a savior. Well, let's look at our first point, you know, caught in the act as we read together, starting in John 8, picking up in verse one. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court. And they said to him, to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. And now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones and he was left alone with the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Wow. Well, I talk about a you know, gnarly story we have here. But notice in verse 1, it said that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This, of course, was across the Kidron Valley from the walled city of Jerusalem. Now, remember back in chapter 7, the religious leaders wanted Jesus gone. Why? Because the people were flocking to Jesus. The religious leaders felt their stranglehold, religious stranglehold on the people of God was slipping away. And guess what? It was. So they sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. Yet the guards returned to the religious leaders empty-handed. The religious leaders were grilling these soldiers for failing to arrest Jesus. But all these soldiers could say in chapter 7, verse 46, never did a man speak the way that this man speaks. I could see these soldiers walking up to Jesus there to arrest him. He was talking with another group of people, you know, walking them through some parable or what have you and talking to the people where the people were just hanging on every word, listening. Maybe he just got done healing someone else. People were rejoicing. And yet these guards walk up, they say, listen to this man, look at what he does. No one has ever done this ever before. We have never seen anything in our lifetime that is like this. So when they came back empty handed, it was just like, wow they just said, there is no other man like him that has ever walked on the face of the earth for he was so much more than a man. Jesus was the God man. He was the creator of everything seen and unseen. And these guards could only speak the obvious because they watched Jesus from a distance. They listened to Jesus, what he had to say. And their conclusion again was, this is no ordinary man. For never has a man spoken like this before. Never has a man done the things that this man has done. Well, chapter seven ended with the religious leaders debating and arguing amongst themselves and then going home. Yet, as we have read, Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives to pray. What a difference we have here. The religious leaders ended their day arguing amongst themselves of who Jesus was, but Jesus ended his day in prayer on the Mount of Olives. Verse two said that early the next morning, Jesus came back to the temple as usual and the people gathered around him as he began to teach. What you gather around Jesus? Oh, look, there's the teacher. Let's go over there. Yet suddenly, out of nowhere, In the quietness of the morning, there is all of a sudden an uproar. There's raised voices and noise and all of these things, which brings up again this first point, caught in the act. Yes, it must have sounded like a riot coming down the hallway as a crowd appeared, yelling, screaming, anger in their eyes, veins popping out of their necks. And right in front of Jesus, the crowd stops instantly and out of the crowd is a woman thrown to the ground like a worthless piece of trash, possibly naked. For she was grabbed and forced out into the open. Yes, as it said in verse 4, she was literally caught in the very act of adultery. This was a serious crime. It was a serious crime then in God's eyes. It's still a serious crime today in God's eyes. And for those keeping count, it was breaking number seven of the 10 commandments recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20. It stated, thou shall not commit adultery. Breaking this law was actually punishable by death. It wasn't like stealing, like, okay, you stole something, so you have to pay back what you stole. Oh, no, this breaking this law was so much more severe. We're told in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law of God, in Deuteronomy 22, 22, it says, if a man is found lying with a married woman and both of them, they shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge this evil from Israel. How does God feel about it? It's evil, he says. Understand, there is a sanctity of marriage in the eyes of God. God is the one who created the marriage institution itself, and he longs for us to keep the marriage bed undefiled. Know this, God created the intimacy that we are able to share with the opposite sex to be thoroughly enjoyed. He created sex for our pleasure, you could say, only when a couple, though, enters into a marriage covenant. Though unpopular today, this standard that God has set for us sexually doesn't change with the popular vote or whatever our culture desires or what society says is okay now. See, society's changed on this issue as we see all around us today, but that doesn't mean that God has changed. God never changes his desires. What is sin 5,000 years ago is, well, it's still sin today. And for those that reject this standard of living, God says they cannot go to heaven. He says, okay, you don't wanna to listen to my word? Then here's the deal. You can't go to heaven. You'll have to stand before me when you die. Like, wow, are you serious? That is a heavy price to pay. And so it was for those who committed adultery or those that are having any kind of sexual relationship outside of a marriage between a man and a woman i wonder if there's anyone here that's considering adultery or if there's anyone that's like been thinking about it maybe it's just like a a daydream that's floating around in your head or maybe you entertain the thought with someone at your work and they seem to be everything that your spouse is not you know they all they laugh at all my stupid jokes Maybe you ladies is someone that's telling you that you smell good every day. Oh, gee, you sure look nice today. They're giving you all those compliments that your husband doesn't give. You know, let me give you four really good reasons to a man and a woman to drive those thoughts completely out of your mind. Number one, it's a radical and gnarly sin against God. And the Bible says that the adulterer will not, be allowed to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're giving up any right to go to heaven. But I go to church every day, Pastor. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. This overrides everything. You will not go to heaven. Number two, you will do incredible damage to your spouse, something that might not ever be repaired. Number three, you will do damage to your children and yourself as your family could fall apart completely through divorce. Number four, you will damage your witness and the church when you as a Christian fail morally. Yes, God put a high standard on keeping the marriage bed pure. That's why the penalty of adultery was death. Again, wow, death. Well, if we kept that same standard today, two things would happen. Number one, the population of the world would greatly decrease. Okay, number one. And number two, the homes of families would not be broken. Fewer homes would be broken. Men would think twice before they ran off with a coworker. Women would think long and hard before dressing seductively and flirting with their coworkers. But unfortunately, here in America, this nation that was founded on God, His yeah, we have rejected God's standards, And we have replaced it with doing what we desire to do, completely disregarding God's holy standard that he's laid out for us. Understand what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He says, look, you can do whatever you wanna do because he's given us free will, right? We can do whatever we want. But he just says this, I'm just reminding you. Are you ready? He says, here's the conclusion when all else has been done and said. Okay, it's like, hey, when the dust settles, is fear God and keep his commandments. This applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, whether it is hidden or not, whether it is good or evil. So it's like people can believe whatever they want to believe. Oh, I don't believe that. Hey, everyone's doing it today. Hey, what does it matter? Who cares? It's two consenting adults. You can say whatever you want to say, justify all you want to justify. God says, here's the conclusion. You're going to die one day and you stand before me. And in that day, If you live for yourself instead of for me, then you will not go to heaven. I mean, God, that's crazy. That's including all sex outside of marriage. But getting back to our text today, we have a woman and she's caught in the very act of adultery. Could you imagine what this woman's thinking knowing that death is the penalty? Could you imagine what's going through her head as her sin has been exposed to all? Her plight is not looking good at all. But wait a minute, hold on here. Something is missing. Something is rotten in Denmark here. Where is the man? Where's he at? Doesn't it take two to tango? I wonder if this wasn't a setup. Just how did these religious leaders know what was going on behind that particular closed door on this morning here? And just how did the man so conveniently slip out the back door? Yes, there's something fishy here. And John brings it out in verses five and six. Let's read those again. It says, now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Verse six, for they were saying this, testing him, testing Jesus so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and he wrote on the ground. Grounds for accusing him? Yes, because they weren't able to just stone people freely. They couldn't just go out and kill people themselves because Rome had came in and now Rome's the government of their own city. They are not they don't have all the legal means that they used to have. That's why when they wanted to kill Jesus, they had to take him before Pontius Pilate. So it's like, ah, oh, let's trick Jesus this way. If he says for us to stone him, well he told us to do it, and then he would be in trouble with the Romans. There was other reasons too. We'll get into those here in a moment. Yes, they were testing Jesus. Again, why? They wanted him to lose his credibility with the people and with the Roman government. How? Well, the religious leaders put all their little finite, little tiny brains together, and they came up with this plan that they thought they could paint Jesus into a corner by presenting him with a lose-lose situation. For they thought if Jesus condemns her and says, sure, do what the law of the Lord says, stone her to death, do it here, do it right now, then his reputation of love, grace, compassion would be tarnished. Plus, he'd be in trouble with the Romans because they weren't supposed to do that. Yet, if he said, no, don't stone her, then he would be rejecting the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments written in his Word. Yes, they thought they had caught Jesus in the catch-22. No way out. But what fools they all proved to be. Who did they think they were? How in the world did these mere men think they could trap and confuse the living God? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3.19, it says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their own craftiness. Yes, they were fools thinking they could somehow trick the all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, infinite God. I wonder how many of us have tried to do the same. Maybe you're living in sin and your life is filled with guilt even now. Yet you try to justify yourself. You try to convince yourself that what you're doing is, is okay. Everyone does this. It's like, what's the big deal? You even try to do extra good works to help justify yourself. I'm such a good person. Look at, look at all these good things that I do, even though you've got that one black cloud of sin in your life, thinking that somehow the good is going to outweigh the bad as if somehow God grades on the curve. Know this, God will judge us for not only what we do, but for the very motive in our heart behind what we did and why we did it. And no matter how many of the good works we have, it doesn't change the sin that's in our life. There will be no smoke and mirrors in heaven. Felix the Cat will not show up with his bag of tricks. By the way, does anyone here know who Felix the Cat is? Okay, all right, okay. I'm, I was dating myself, okay. It was a cartoon when I was growing up. Felix the Cat would come in his bag of tricks and get it, pull everything out of that bag. Anyway, but uh, everything we have ever done will be judged before God. So why do we like these religious leaders think that we can somehow I'll thank God, that somehow we can fool the God of creation and get away with our sin. Like, it's not going to count for me because I'm so good in these other areas. Now, I can't answer why people think that, but I know for myself, I've tried to do it myself. I know it's like over the course of 42 years of being a Christian, I've tried to justify things in my life. And guess what? It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And what does Jesus do as these religious leaders think? They have him backed into a corner. He does nothing. He does absolutely nothing. He doesn't even respond to them. He just like looks back down at the ground and he calmly starts writing with his finger. It's like, in case you've never noticed this in the Bible, this is the only time that it's recorded that Jesus is writing anything. But these accusers in verse seven, it says they persisted. That word in the original language means they continue to push him. Jesus, we're talking to you. Aren't you listening to us? They got stones in their hands. They're ready to go. This woman's weeping on the floor. I mean, everything is just crazy. And he's not like as if they said nothing. So they kept persisting. Hey, listen to us. Don't you see what's happening here? We caught her. What do you say we should do? They kept pushing it, which brings up our second point, looking within. Yes, while they were pushing Jesus on the outside, Jesus was looking at them on the inside. He knew exactly what they were up to as they had their fingers pointing to this woman's sin. They had turned a deaf ear to the burning sin of their own lives. Blinded by their own wickedness, they persisted. They pushed and asking Jesus, what do you say that we should do to this woman? And with a calmness in his voice, the master savior lifts his head once again and simply said, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Wow. Amazing. Oh, just that ice pick in the spine. I mean, it's just like, I mean, here are these guys. I'm sure when they were planning this strategy of tricking Jesus, I'm sure, well, if he says this, we'll say this. If he says this, we'll say this. They had a million things on their list of what he could possibly say, except that he, any one of you who has no sin in their life, go ahead, cast the first stone. Wow. Notice it was from the eldest to the youngest. Oh, how the heart of Jesus must have burned in two different ways here. The first way that it was burning, he must have been filled with so much pity and compassion and love for this poor, guilty woman. Yeah, she's guilty and she's laying on the ground. She's weeping. It's like she just lay at at his feet and she's gushing her eyes with tears. Her heart is probably just terrified. It was filled with fear. Yet it also must have burned in a second way. It must have been burning in total rage and anguish against these religious hypocrites who set this woman up.
2: That's all the time we have for our message, but please join us next time as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. You've been listening to pastor and Bible teacher Steve Wilburn of Core Church Los Angeles. If you'd like to hear more messages by Pastor Steve, download the Core Church Los Angeles free app available on iOS and Android. Core Church is sponsored by and a listener-supported outreach of Core Church LA. If you have been blessed by this program, consider supporting our radio ministry by texting Core Church LA one word that's Core Church LA to 77977. And remember, there's a God in heaven who loves you.